Good morning. So a couple of days ago, I watched uh, Al Sharpton's eulogy for Tyree Nichols uh, at his funeral, which was held in Memphis where he lived. And in his talk, uh, Al Sharpton, Reverend Sharpton referred to a talk that Martin Luther King had given uh, in Memphis uh, about 24 hours before he was, was assassinated. And in that talk, uh, he, Al Sharpton pointed out that Martin Luther King didn't want to go to the talk that he was supposed to give in Memphis because of the weather and because he wasn't feeling very well. And so instead he sent Dr. Ralph Abernathy to take his place. And after Dr. Abernathy got to the venue, he, there were so many people there, he uh, called Dr. King on the phone and he said, Martin, you need to come. There are thousands here and they didn't come to see me. And so because of that, uh, Dr. King went to the event. He set aside his reservations and the fact that he didn't feel very well. And he went to the event and he gave a talk that has since been titled, I've been to the mountaintop. And this is a very famous speech that he gave. So Martin Luther King said in part, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And then he ended his speech with these words. He said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So after he gave the speech and sat down, people who were there said that he had tears in his eyes. And James Jordan later recalled, this time it just seemed like he was just saying, goodbye, I have to leave. And then, as we know, about 24 hours after this talk, he was assassinated on the balcony of the hotel where he was staying. So this speech was recalled by, by uh, Reverend Sharpton. And what Reverend Sharpton said in reference to this speech was he said, I'm a mountain climber. I'm not gonna stop till I get to the top of the mountain. I'm a mountain climber. I expect stumbles to come my way. I'm a mountain climber. By the way, he did this in full-blown um, reverend mode. And it was actually very exciting, <laughs> which I will not try to imitate. <laughs> he said, I'm a mountain climber. I expect stumbles to come my way. I'm a mountain climber. You can disgrace me. You can discredit me, but I'm gonna keep climbing. I'm going to climb until Tyree Nichols gets justice. I'm going to climb until Eric Garner gets justice. I'm going to climb until we change the laws. We're mountain climbers. And God before us is more than the whole world against us. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me that I'm his own. He's been food when I was hungry. 
water when I was thirsty. He's my rock, my sword, my shield. Let us have a call to action. Let us go forward to get justice. Let us all be mountain climbers. Don't stop till we get to the top. This was a very, this was like the crescendo of his talk. I really encourage you to watch this on YouTube if you can. So for me as a Zen teacher watching this, I thought to myself, well, you know, what are the important themes that are arising out of this talk that I relate to as being akin to the Buddha Dharma? And that's what I'd like to talk about. I think the most important underlying aspect of this is the reason why uh, Al Sharpton was talking there in the first place was on the occasion of this young man's death. And um, he was killed by the police, as we all know, for seemingly no reason at all, except a kind of crazy hate that they had in their hearts. Uh, so this brings up the question for me of power and responsibility in our daily lives. Within the context of our jobs and any of the relationships that we have. So the question becomes, how do we handle power and responsibility? When are we, in, when we are in a position of power, do we understand it is our responsibility to protect and nurture the people who are in our care? Because essentially we are all in each other's care. And regardless of whether we have a horizontal relationship or a vertical relationship. So in general, what is our responsibility in relationship to nurture and care for each other? And then the second question, kind of category of questions that I had about this has to do with uh, Martin Luther King's speech and Al Sharpton's remarks and how it relates to the practicing of the Dharma. So what does it mean to go to the mountaintop? What does it mean to be a person climbing the mountain? How do we relate to not knowing the moment of our death? And how does this affect our effort in practice? So I was inspired to think about these things when I heard this talk and thought about it later on. And I thought to myself initially, after hearing just the rousing part of this talk, I thought, well, what can I do? You know, what can I do? And, you know, I think inevitably when we have those questions after seeing something like that, we think, oh gosh, I should, you know, be doing uh, Meals Without Borders. I should be going to other countries. I should be joining the army and, you know, fighting in Ukraine or something along those lines. We kind of have these grandiose notions about what we should be about that really don't have a lot of context in our own lives. In my case, I'm 72. I'm not going to go to Ukraine and fight, you know, in the army there. Probably I would last for about 10 minutes. So, you know, there's this way in which we have to be realistic about this and look at the totality of our life and see what we're doing that's kind of fantasy. And sometimes the fantasy that we have about what we should be doing is so 
out of context with our lives that we never do anything because we can't kind of make that connection. So I think what we do, we have to be realistic about it. We have to be aware of our capacities and our talents. So I thought about that and I thought about, you know, well, what is the one, what is the thing that I can do? You know, what is the thing in my daily life right now that I can do? And from a Buddhist Sotazen point of view, the, the answer to that question is I can practice harder. You know, I can put more effort into practicing the various things that, that we talk about. And what does that mean to me in the context of my life right now? So, and essentially that's how do I practice for the greater good for other people? Because that's basically what our bodhisattva power is, right? How do we learn to be skillful? How do we learn to be in relationship with other people and not cause harm and, and do good and, you know, be skillful? So, you know, if, if I'm honest about my life and looking at my life as it is, I realize that, you know, I spend my time uh, working on teaching Buddhism. I spend my time on trying to have skillful relationships. I spend my time uh, working on that. And, uh, you know, I also read the newspaper, or I drink coffee, I like to get a good night's sleep, uh, have a few, you know, television programs I like to watch. So, uh, you know, these things are also part of our lives. So I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be Martin Luther King. I'm not gonna be Mahatma Gandhi. I'm not gonna be Greta Thunberg. I'm gonna be each one of us in our way is going to contribute the way that we can contribute to the totality of this world's functioning in an altruistic way that is helpful and skillful to other beings. And I also asked myself this question about power that came out of this listening to this. Because without an abuse of power, um, Dyre Nichols would be alive today. He would not have been killed. So what's our relationship to power and our responsibility? And when we are in a position of power, do we understand that it is our responsibility to protect and nurture those people in our care? And how, how do we do that? How do we be skillful? How do we like let go of our own, uh, for example, if you're dealing with a child who's, who's uh, uh, being difficult. How do we cultivate patience? How do we understand so that we don't lash out with some kind of angry, inappropriate, hurtful response, but that we actually, you know, do be patient and understanding and compassionate and yet also set boundaries. So in my case, as a teacher of adults, I want to model my awareness of my responsibility and to be in collaboration with others, to be in collaboration with the Sangha. And I also want to be strict with myself about my conduct and ask myself, how can I do this better? How can I relate more skillfully? So my role is to teach others who are interested in Soto's and practice. Even sometimes that's, I'm not sure what that is, but you know, it's like to inquire, to be skillful. 
So this practice, it has particular norms and guidelines, and it's my job. If you come here and you want to practice Soto Zen, it's my job, I feel, to, in a skillful way, impart those to you. So that's the kind of thing that I think about as a teacher and my responsibility. And I'll also say that unlike what happened uh, with Tyree Nichols being killed, I don't have the power, nor would I want to have the power to be able to physically uh, hurt someone in practice. You know, we read all these stories, right? Wake, I cut off his arm, you know, to get Bodhidharma's attention, or the Zen teacher says, now I will give you 30 blows. You know, we hear all these stories about that kind of thing. No, thank you. I have absolutely no desire to, to do things like that. But there's one thing that, that I do have a deep responsibility and I care about a lot is not hurting anyone. I realize that, that we all have this power and in particular as a teacher, I have this power to potentially hurt someone as a student, emotionally hurt someone. I take this as a grave responsibility and I feel like we should all take this as a grave responsibility no matter what our relationship is. But I think that, you know, in particular as a teacher, that is my responsibility. Maybe that's like number one, do no harm, number one. So I take refuge in teachings. And in general, it is the practice of each of us to be responsible in all of our relationships, regardless of the power dynamics. And of course, having said this, sometimes we fail. We get caught and we can't see the totality of a situation. But we make this effort to continue to cultivate these skillful interactions that we want to have. That should be our aim in practice. I tell you, for me, enlightenment, that's it. That's what enlightenment means. It's not like a woo-woo wonderful experience. Enlightenment is according oneself with the totality of what's arising in this moment in your life. Like, can we respond skillfully, helpfully? Can we actually be present for what's happening in our lives? That to me is the most important thing, not trying to cultivate some experience of oneness, if you will, except within the context of oneness being, being able to actually be in this mandala of relationships in a way that is, is really compassionate and, and exhibits wisdom and enables us to be skillful with each other. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so there was a second set of questions that I mentioned. And that second set is, what does it mean to go to the mountaintop? What does it mean to be a person climbing a mountain? Dogen said in Uji, because <clears throat> we can't have a lecture without a quote from Duggan. <laughs> <laughs> Duggan said it. The nature of the truth of this yesterday and today lies in the time. When you go directly into the mountains and look at the myriad peaks around you. The nature of the truth of this yesterday and today lies in the time when you go directly into the mountains and look at the myriad peaks around you. Okay, so this activity of being able to stand on the highest mountain peak and seeing everything. You know, imagine you're standing up 
in the, a peak in the Rocky Mountains or what it would be like to stand on the top of Mount Everest, you know, and that you would see below you, there weren't any, if it wasn't a cloudy day, so there's a very clear, beautiful day, you see all the mountains around you and you see the valleys and you can just get a panoramic view of everything that's happening. And then you have this kind of clarity about the nature of the earth, right? And you can see all of this. So from this universal view of practice, that's what we can do. We stand on the, high, the top of the mountain and we can see something. We can see how our life functions in the context of the totality of all of life. So that's the meaning of what it means to stand on the top of the highest peak from a Buddhist point of view. But Martin Luther King said, and of course this is true, he said, we've got some difficult days ahead, right? We have some difficult days, but it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. So he's saying, I can do this. It doesn't matter to me because I've seen the big picture. I understand this from having been to the top of the mountain. I've seen the promised land. So this promised land is this, from a Buddhist point of view, this altruistic practice of the Bodhisattva, seeing the whole totality of reality functioning and seeing the altruistic nature of that. So he says, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So Dr. King had climbed and stood on the highest mountain peak. And he saw the whole of societal karma. He had this vision of a larger whole and his place in that, in that loom of God's will. He had seen the fruition of what he called the promised land. What he saw was optimistic. What he saw was inspiring. He said things would be hard, but we can get there. And perhaps not with him. Because this is a multi-generational task. It is an immense task, which requires the effort of one person standing on the shoulders of others. So we can't see the beginning and we can't see the end. But we keep at climbing the mountain. And also, I just had this thought, you know, Martin Luther King said, I may not get there with you, but you know, we've carried Martin Luther King with us as an inspiration ever since we became aware of his life and his life will continue on in that way. So he is still with us. Martin Luther King is still with us, climbing the mountain. In Zen, we call this the Dharma lineage of the Buddhas and ancestors who have been to the mountaintop. In our practice, every person is encouraged to take the view of standing on the mountaintop. Having done so, we see the goal of our activity, our practice, and our particular life as it is in the context of the totality of all being, in the context of having stood on the mountain. Because there is this fast vista, this universal aspect, but simultaneously, it's the particularity of each person's life. It's the particularity of every activity that we engage in, every relationship that we have. So the big picture is really critical to our understanding. 
uh, it's important that we feel some inspiration from this, this inspiration to carry on. So in Buddhism we say, or in Zen we say, uh, this is big mind, this is Buddha mind. Uh, when we see this whole of the mandala of life, we understand, we get grounded in the idea and see how it unfolds as part of a bigger event. And through the vision of this bigger event, we feel motivated to integrate and support the well-being of self and others. This kind of ground of our practice. And we do that at this time, not some other time. We don't do it in the past. We don't do it in the future. We do it right now at this time in our lives where we are right now. So we can feel our desire to do better, to do good. And uh, from a Zen you know, perspective, we talk about Buddha nature, that we are already endowed with this. We are already this altruistic nature. So we already are motivated. This part of us that wants to do good, this part of us that wants to carry on practice. And I'm inspired by this view of life. So I'm really happy to be part of this long line of people, this lineage. Jaku said to me the other day, she said, I'm really happy to be in the middle of this lineage, to be part of this, this activity of all these people who've come before us. And they don't have to be Buddhist, right? Everybody, the whole world, all of these people whose shoulders we stand on and who, in who actually stand on our shoulders as well, even though we may not be able to see that. So this is... We would say, oh, you know, okay, this is the world unfolding in these smaller or larger ways. But I would ask you, what is large? What is small? It isn't helpful to our, for us to judge our effort as being great or lesser or larger or smaller. We can't characterize it in that way. So how we practice, how we conduct our lives is based on the causal conditions of our lives. And no matter where this is, this practice is, it's beyond the characteristics of small and large. It is just our effort, our everyday effort to engage the practice. So the Dharma teaches us that all of our actions ripple out. They all have a ripple effect. And they all make a difference to our lives and the lives of others, even if we can't, if we can't see that. So I do believe, as Martin Luther King said, that each of us climbs this mountain, as Al Sharpton encouraged us to do. He said, I am a mountain climber. We are climbing this mountain. And we are climbing this mountain together. We are helping each other. That's, that's the meaning of Sangha. We are helping each other climb this mountain. We're not letting each other fall off the side of the mountain. We're like hand, warm hand to warm hand climbing up this mountain. So, and how we climb that mountain is we look at whatever we encounter face-to-face -face right now in this moment. So for us, it means learning and practice and applying that practice to our life. 
as best we can. And how that looks exactly or how it plays out is actually a dialogue between yourself, between the Dharma, the forms, the teachers, the tenets, the guidelines of the school, and of Buddhism in general, or, you know, if you're not Buddhist, whatever it is that it is that is your guiding principle. So then we apply that understanding to our relationships as they are right now. And we use these various tools to figure out and work with our problems and with ourselves and our relationships. Okay, so finally, the last question that came up for me about this was uh, about birth and death and effort. About the question of, we can't know when we're gonna die. And, uh, and yet, we continue to make effort, even in the midst of that ambiguity, in the midst of impermanence. So we don't know when we're gonna die. Um, Martin Luther King did not die, know that he was going to die within 24 hours of having give, given that speech. I mean, we like to think that somehow that speech was consciously prophetic, but I think, you know, we don't know. I don't think he knew. There could have been many reasons why he might have made the comments he made. We'll never know. He was sick. He probably felt a little down, not feeling well. Uh, but he was making this effort to give this talk, to encourage people, to inspire people. Perhaps his talk was about a little bit of a pep talk that he gave to himself. Maybe he said to himself, you know, I see the larger picture. I'm struggling. I need to make this extra effort to respond to all these people who came to this event to hear my speech. I'm going to inspire myself and others. And yet at the same time, you know, I feel kind of punk don't feel very good. Um, but, and this effort, because of that, this effort feels like a great weight. I suspect that Martin Luther King felt a great weight, not just that day, but many days in his life because he was a figurehead, because people depended on him, because he could probably feel people standing on his shoulders. He probably also want, he felt the people standing on either side of him as well but he also knew that people stood on his shoulders and got inspiration. So he said, I can't bear this alone. Please help me carry this work forward. So carrying this work forward of practice is our bodhisattva vow. It's a vow that we make to each other, actually. We don't make the vow in some kind of you know vacuum somewhere. It's a relational vow. We make it to our children, to our friends, to our sangha, our community, all of our relationships. You know, sometimes we can't quite get there. Despite our best effort, it's not happening. We're angry, we're afraid, whatever it is that is causing us to either withdraw or lash out or and we do something that's not very skillful. So, we, we totally miss the mark, even though we're making an effort. In one of those fascicles, he says, you know, you shoot the arrow at the target a hundred times, and then you hit the target. But he didn't say sequentially, you shoot the arrow a hundred times, and on the 100th time, you hit the target. 
he said, you just keep shooting the arrows and sometimes the arrow hits the target and sometimes it doesn't hit the target. But the fact that you made that effort to shoot the arrow, that's the most important thing. Hitting the target is important, but if you hadn't shot the arrows, you never would have hit in the target. So shooting those arrows is our effort. And I hope, and I think most of us actually shoot in shooting a hundred metaphorical arrows, arrows probably hit the target a lot more times than once. So I'll just leave you with that idea that I think we can, we do a little better than that, but it's an important understanding that he's trying to convey here is that, you know, our effort is to shoot the arrow. With the aim to hit the target, but knowing that sometimes we're not going to. <clears throat> and by the way, Suzuki Roshi says, you know, these very problems are the things that we, that put our practice forward. If we didn't have problems, we don't need to practice. If we didn't have the suffering in the world that we have, we don't need the Bodhisattva vow. We just, you know, I don't know what we'd be doing, but not this, right? Well, maybe you'd be here. But I meant a more global thing. So, um, we are all mountain climbers. And you can call that by many, many names, but essentially it is an altruistic, intrinsic motivation to all beings and human beings from our Buddha nature to all beings Buddha nature. So when we decide to do something, we should give it our best effort and not take it for granted. Because you know something? We don't know when we're gonna die. Uh, it could be today, or it could be years from now. The causes and conditions of our life are not clear to us. So at a Zen monastery, there's a, most of you are probably familiar, there's a wooden plaque and there's a mallet and you hit the plaque and that signals people to come to the Zendo. And on that Han is written a verse. And the verse is, wake up, life is transient, swiftly passing. Be aware of the great matter, don't waste time. So as you're hitting the mallet, you're sending out that, that's what you're sending out. Don't waste time. This is your life. Come to the Zendo, come and practice. So we're all being reminded by the sound of the wooden Han to wake up, to wake up to your life. Wake up to the purpose and aim of your deepest desire. To find your vow, to remember your vow, to wake up to our own delusion, and to wake up to our own enlightenment. And then the next line is, life is transient, swiftly passing. We don't know what the future holds. But here's what we absolutely do know, is that life is impermanent. Everything, nothing is going to stay the same. So we have to wake up to that. And we make our best effort, moment after moment after moment even though sometimes we fail because there's no other opportunity to make this effort except in the present moment. So don't waste time because this is your life. Your, our life is lived out in the present moment. 
We don't live it in the past and we're not living it in the future. It's just right now. So what are we gonna do right now in our life right now? And that doesn't mean we have, it's some kind of, you know, like uh, Mary Oliver's thing about, you know, you don't have to crawl across a desert on your hands and knees. That's not what I'm suggesting, you know, but that we keep this in mind that we're making this effort. And what, whatever that moment is that, that needs to be attended to. And then um, we say, don't make up standards on your own. And uh, I'm a little distracted because Jean was waving her hand. Um, don't make up, don't make up uh, standards on your own. So why don't we make up standards on our own? And the reason is, is because we have a very wily small mind. We have a very wily part of ourselves that wants what we want, whether it's helpful or skillful or not for ourselves or others. And um, so we say, don't make up standards on your own. And uh, that's why we have the forms. That's why we have the practices. That's why they do the things that we do is because in a way, they're like a little bit of a shoot, right? We say, okay, I'm going to go into this shoot and I'm not going to make up standards on my own. I'm going to give myself over to this using our discerning mind so that we're not doing something that's, you know, we can see as harmful. But we're going to say, okay, I'm going to, go into this shoe, and I'm going to see what I learn about myself and about my relationships by putting myself in this little shoe. So that's why we don't make up standards on our own. And then I ask, you know, I ask myself, when it's all said and done, what will I regret? When it's all said and done, will I be able to say to myself, I, I gave it my best effort? You know, I gave this life my best effort. So be aware of the great matter. Climb the mountain. See the peaks all around you. Know that you stand on the shoulders of the ancestors. As the ancestors stand on your shoulders, because this is not a linear event. Observe and learn from their effort. Observe and learn from your effort. Observe and learn from each other's effort and be inspired by that. So in Buddhism, this is the great matter. Be aware of the great matter. How do we enact the Bodhisattva vow in our daily lives? Can we stop, stand atop the highest peak? So it is important to practice in practice, to have the experience of seeing our lives from the top of the mountain. I think that's important, to have that glimpse of that experience. So sometimes we have things we call Satori experiences or Kensho experiences. And I think those are in part those experiences of standing on the mountain, the top of the mountain, and seeing our lives from that way. And I think this inspires our effort. Although sometimes it's actually counterproductive because we get caught in just trying to replicate these emotional feel-good experiences and we want to divorce ourselves from our lives. So that's not the point of this. Real Satori or real Kensho 
is an experience in which you actually experience your connection with all of life in concert with life, in interacting with your life, not just the trees, but other people in a way that you understand this mandala and it's functioning and you see each other in this deep way. So this is also the effort that inspires us to climb the mountain. And we are mountain climbers. That's what we're doing in practice. Pema Chodron tells a story about climbing up the mountain. And I think the books start where you are. And she says, you know, in practice, people say, oh, well, I'm halfway up the mountain or I'm one third up the mountain or I'm up almost to the top of the mountain or something like that. We judge our practice based on where we stick ourselves. And she says, none of that's important. What's important is you are right where you are right now. And then that's, of course, the famous line, start where you are. You are right where you are right now on the path of this mountain. And it doesn't matter, you know, where you want to put yourself on the mountain. What's important is what are you doing right now in this place that you are? So we make this effort to climb the mountain and that, and so does Anna's practice realization. That's the how. It's the how of the journey of the mountain. That's our focus. Not necessarily attaining anything in the future. So in and of itself, each moment is now. Now. The eternal now of this moment of practice, of our life. So don't waste time because we don't know, because our life is impermanent. Because if if we do want what is best for all beings, then we shouldn't waste a moment in making that effort. So whether we're given a chance to respond, whether it's driving your car, watching television, hanging out with your friends, all of those kind of Monday daily things that we do, shopping at the grocery store, whenever we're given this opportunity, having a difficult conversation, then don't waste time, respond in the way that you know is gonna be skillful. So not wasting time is not running around, by the way, is not running around from here to there. And we have this expression, practice as if your hair's on fire. When I first heard that, I thought it meant like, you know, oh, you gotta, I've gotta practice, I've gotta practice, my hair's on fire. No, it means if your hair were on fire, it would have all of your attention. It doesn't mean that you're running around throwing a coat over your head. It means that, that your attention has been gotten in a very serious way. So we want to pay attention. Don't waste time. So fully live your lives, grounded in a wholesome way. Do what inspires you. Do the hard things that grow your life. And enjoy the simple things, the fun things that also soothe us and bring joy in our lives. And finally, I just leave you with this. Become a living link in the lineage of the Buddhas. Thank you.